Well, I want to begin by expressing my gratitude to a few people that are close and dear to me. I'm grateful, uh, one, to be able to preach tonight. Uh, grateful to my wife, Lindsay. It's been a wild five years of marriage, but it's been a great one, and I'm grateful for you and your encouragement through the uh, highs and lows of the seminary days as I'm beginning to wrap up. I'm grateful for uh, my parents and them sticking with me for the last 40 years. I did just turn 40. I'm grateful for the elders and the leadership here at Countryside, for them pouring into me for over a decade now. And I'm grateful for you, uh, brothers and sisters here at Countryside, for the encouragement along the way and the many emails and the text messages and messages and those things that have just been a huge encouragement um, to me. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to turn to Judges chapter 17. Judges chapter 17. The title for the message uh, this evening is Micah, Idolatry, and the New Canaanites. Micah, Idolatry, and the New Canaanites. And we'll work through uh, Judges 17 in our time together this evening. Well, there are over 150 species of chameleons in our world today, ranging anywhere from the size of your thumbnail to a house cat, which I don't like cats, by the way. (laughs) Chameleons are known for two things. Their eyes have the ability to move in different directions at the same time. And of course, chameleons are known most for being able to change colors. National Geographic tells me that the outer layer of their skin is see-through. Beneath that are layers of special cells filled with pigment, the substance that gives plants and animals and even us color. To display a new color, the brain sends a message for these cells to either increase or decrease in size. Then as pigments from different cells are released, they mix with each other to create the new skin colors or new skin tones. Well, what is true of chameleons and their ability to physically match or become the colors of their environment is true of all humanity, spiritually speaking. Every single person becomes like what they worship. In a 2008 book entitled, We Become What We Worship, uh, G.K. Beale wrote, Instead of worshiping and resembling the true God, idolaters resemble the idols they worship. When God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, the first two dealt explicitly with idols and worship. You shall have no other God before me, so you shall only worship me, and you shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall only worship me in ways that I prescribe. As God continued to reveal himself and reveal his law to the people of Israel, he gave them precise instructions that would keep them from falling headlong into idolatry and the worship of false gods. 
In Deuteronomy 12, 2, he told them to utterly destroy, uh, to ruin, to obliterate every pagan, idolatrous place of worship. And he said to do so with a sense of urgency, immediacy. Any foreign sanctuaries, any shrines, God commanded the people to utterly destroy them. And these places were normally in the midst of trees representing fertility. And these places were also on high hills uh, close to the gods. So as the nation of Israel would conquer lands and territories, they were to completely obliterate these idolatrous, satanic sites. In Deuteronomy 12.3, God told his people to tear down pagan and idolatrous paraphernalia or objects. Uh, He said to smash their pillars. Those would be standing stones that symbolize the gods. Uh, He said to burn their asherim, trees or wooden poles that symbolize the fertility goddesses. And then he said to cut down engraved images. And then to sort of sum up and put a bow on everything, God said in Deuteronomy 12, 4, you shall not act like this toward the Lord your God. And then he said these words, and you shall not do whatever is right in your own eyes. Now, why would God say such a thing? Because Isaiah 48, 11 says that God will not give his glory to another. And in addition to that, God requires that his people be holy because he is holy. Well, in the passage that we find ourselves in this evening, paganism, idolatry, And the worship of false gods had run rampant and completely overtaken the people of God. Rather than taking heed to God's clear-cut commands in Deuteronomy, they had embraced the gods and the idols of their day. And the corruption went so deep. Again, this wasn't a surface-level issue for the nation The corruption went so deep and the idolatry was so rank and the worship was so adulterated that the ethnic people of God, the nation of Israel, didn't even recognize how far they had fallen. Just like chameleons change colors to match their environment, the nation of Israel had Become full blown Canaanites. You become what you worship. The verses that we will consider tonight are all the more pertinent for us today because in them we get a devastating, destructive picture of the idolatrous capabilities of the human heart. In fact, it was. Uh, the great reformer John Calvin, who said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Judges 17 is a warning for us to flee from idols and to run 
to Christ. Now, the book of Judges is an interesting book. As you know, it depicts the darkest of days in the nation of Israel's history. Its theme can essentially be captured this way, disobedience and defeat, and we'll see why in just a moment. The time period that you find the book of Judges essentially connects us from Joshua, or the time of Joshua, up until Samuel. And as you know, there's a reoccurring cycle or a reoccurring theme that is woven all throughout the 21 chapters of Judges, and it is that Israel does evil, God gives them over to oppressors, the nation of Israel cries out to God for help, and then God sends judges, or you could even better say uh, deliverers or saviors. In fact, you could argue that the book of Judges is better titled the book of deliverers or the book of saviors. And there are about six or seven of these cycles, and as these cycles unfold throughout the book, the nation of Israel continues to get worse and worse and worse, and even the judges, the deliverers that God sends, get worse. Now, as you come to chapters 17 through 21, where we'll spend our time this evening, you come to an appendix. In these chapters, the author essentially zooms in on the issues that we find in 1 through 16. In 17 through 21, he zooms in on particular issues that highlight the degradation and the misery of the nation of Israel. So chapters 17 through 21 are essentially a microscope. It's going to draw us in to one particular family that is indeed representative of the entire nation. Now, why were things so bad? Why is this considered some of the worst time in the nation of Israel's history? In those days, there was no king, but everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So as we begin to work our way through Judges 17, this text can essentially be uh, divided into three groups of people. Three groups of people and We'll begin by looking at the first group, and that is the idolatrous people of Ephraim. The idolatrous people of Ephraim. You follow along as I begin reading in chapter 17, verse 1. Now there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver which were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse in my hearing, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. He then returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will return them to you. Let's stop there. So there are several important characters that we are introduced to throughout this 
narrative. And as we get introduced to these characters, it shows the progression of the narrative. Let's begin by looking at the first character, and that is Micah. As the story begins, we are introduced to the main character of the story, Micah. And he plays a significant role in the rest of the book of Judges. So if you need some extra reading this week, go to chapters 18 and beyond, and you'll see how vital Micah's role continues to be in the Judges. This is not Micah the prophet that we come to love and know at the end of our Old Testament, so don't be confused there. But here, Micah, in Hebrew, his name means, and you'll see the irony of this unfold throughout the text, his name means, who is like Yahweh. Based on Micah's name, it's implied uh, that his parents knew of the one true God. It was common practice in the ancient world to give theophoric names to your children's name or your children, names that referenced uh, the God that you worshipped. That's true in this case, and as the story unfolds, you'll see the irony of the meaning of Micah's name. We're told here that Micah is from the mountains of Ephraim. Of course, Ephraim was the son of Joseph, who had been blessed by Jacob in Genesis chapter 48. In the conquest and divide of the promised land, Ephraim and his people had been allocated a strategic portion of land. You can see that there uh, in, in the middle of the picture. But in the judge's world, and this is key, in the judge's world, Ephraim has only been mentioned a couple times and that being in a negative light. So as you get to Judges chapter 17, Ephraim has been mentioned, but it hasn't been mentioned in a positive light, but a negative one. So that's tipping us off to how this chapter is going to go. Micah, of course, as you've seen, has indulged in thievery. It's impossible to know whether this was a one-time sin or something that he had habitually partaken in. But here he blatantly disregards Exodus 20:15, "You shall not steal." And add to that the disrespect that he showed towards his mother, not honoring his parents, Exodus 20, 12. But thrust into view here, on a human level, is that Micah, for the most part, seems to have no regard for anyone except himself. More importantly, Micah has no regard for Yahweh. And this becomes more and more apparent as the story goes on. We come to character number two in the story, Micah's mother. Now, she remains nameless throughout the narrative. She undoubtedly knows of Yahweh based on the naming of her son, Micah, and her use of God's personal name, Yahweh, throughout the narrative. But it appears that if she is a lover of money, of possessions and wealth, it seems that she's a hoarder of possessions and goods. In fact, the text tells us that she had 1,100 shekels of silver. That would be approximately $25,000 today. So she was considered 
extremely wealthy. You can see in verse 2, take your eyes there again, that Micah, her son, had stolen her hoarded up stash of money and that she responded by uttering a curse. And we even get a picture of the volume of her voice. It says that she uttered that curse loud enough for Micah could hear, which tells us that she probably knew that Micah was the one that had stolen the money. Curses in the ancient world, by the way, were considered to be real and to be effective. They, they weren't just merely talk, but people assumed that they would actually come true. So terrified of the curse reality, Micah admits to having the money, verse 2, and notice in that statement, I took it. It's an emphatic statement. Micah admits he has the silver. He gives it back to his mother. And of course, from his mother's perspective, what a wonderful exchange this must have been. 1,100 pieces of silver back in her greedy hands. And interesting here, at the end of verse 2, notice that she goes from cursing Micah to blessing him. Blessing. Which in the ancient world would have canceled out the curse. Notice her words in verse 3, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord. She went from cursing Micah to receiving the money now to saying that she's going to dedicate all of the money to Yahweh. I mean, at first glance, this is admirable. This is commendable. This is sacrificial giving. Uh, this is praiseworthy. 1,100 pieces of silver dedicated to Yahweh. Oh, the verse goes on, doesn't it? Verse 3. For my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now therefore, I will return them to you. Money dedicated to Yahweh for making graven images. Money dedicated to Yahweh to make idols. It turns out the excitement for the returned silver was deeply connected with her desire to fund the construction of idols. Of course, she sort of dressed it up a bit in the name of Yahweh. So verse 4, So when he returned the silver to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave them to the silversmith. Now did you catch that? Notice the amount of silver that she said she was going to give compared to the amount of silver that she actually gave. She went from 1,100 pieces in verse 3 to 200 pieces that she was willing to give for the construction of idols. See, in reality, even her pseudo-worship of Yahweh was only willing to give one-fifth of silver towards the idol construction and she greedily kept the rest so what did the 200 pieces of silver that were dedicated to the Lord go towards 
Well, now we're introduced to character number three in the story, Micah's silversmith. Verse four. He, the silversmith, made them into a graven image and a molten image, and they were in the house of Micah. So this silversmith would have been very skilled He would have been very seasoned, and he would have been carefully chosen. In fact, it's probable that Micah and company had used him before. This was probably a lucrative business, as he was probably the best and most skilled in town. Of course, based on his occupation and the fact that he was willing to make idols also demonstrates that along with Micah, along with Micah's mother, the silversmith himself was also an idolater. Now notice in verse 4 we're told that the silversmith made a graven image and a molten image. Now a graven image is most likely the construction or the carving out of the image, either out of wood or stone. This would probably have been some type of molding. You can see that here in the picture. And that graven image would have been overlaid with molten or silver. That's the idea behind molten image. And it's possible, and was very common in the world at that time, that what was constructed was a bull calf. Now, bull images were notorious in the ancient world. Uh, They represented strength and power and uh, fertility. And what should come to mind is back in Exodus 32 and the golden calf, and you jump forward in the biblical chronology to Jeroboam in 1 Kings 12, He made two golden calves. So that's probably what Micah had constructed, or Micah had the silversmith construct at uh, this particular point. But there was more to idols in the ancient world than merely constructing uh, the physicality of the idol. In fact, in the ancient Near East at this time, there was a common practice called the washing of the mouth or the opening of the mouth. It was a ritual or ceremony that essentially had seven steps. I'm not going to go through all seven steps, some more homework for you this week, but let me summarize uh, this ritual, the opening or the washing of the mouth. The washing of the mouth ritual prepared the idols for the gods to enter into and to dwell in them. In this ritual, the idol would be constructed and prepared and then set up at the gate of the temple or uh, the shrine. Here in Micah's case, he, he is outfitting his shrine. And it was at that point, as the idol would be set up in the shrine, that the God would enter into that idol. 
From there, the mouth of the image would be opened and the God would then be able to speak. In Egyptian rituals, there would even be an opening of the ears. Uh, There would even be an opening of the eyes as well. This ritual for the idol essentially became the contact point between the earthly and divine worlds. And here you can see on the slides is an ancient tablet that essentially depicts uh, this ritual. The, The presence of the God, the words of the God would essentially enter into that crafted silver bull calf. Now, we don't know exactly if this is what Micah was engaged in, but it it is certainly possible, as archaeological discoveries have shown that this was going on during uh, that time. But regardless, Micah has flat out rejected the word of God, and as Judges tells us, he has determined to do what he thinks is right in his own eyes one commentator says such flagrant violation of exodus and deuteronomy is almost comic it's a masterful use of humor to indicate once again how the thinking of the israelites is backwards and illegitimate let me say it again you become what you worship And by the way, uh, Micah's heinous sins are only just beginning. Notice verse 5, the personal nature in which the text is given to us. Look at the pronoun he. This, This is given to us to demonstrate how Micah is the one in charge and how Yahweh has been shoved outside the shrine And Micah is orchestrating all of it. The man Micah had a shrine. Notice, he made an ephod and household idols. He consecrated one of his sons. So Micah had constructed a shrine. He established his own center of worship. We're told here that he made an ephod, a special garment that would be draped over or around the image. Most commentators believe that this garment would have been similar to the garment worn by the high priest. Again, uh, the high priest being the connecting point, uh, according to the Old Testament, the mediator between God and the people. Here, that idol with the garment wrapped around it was representing just that between the divine and human world. And notice it didn't stop there with uh, this silver bull calf, but we're told that Micah also had household idols, other small images for him to consult and to build his shrine. And notice, wildly, Micah appoints and consecrates one of his sons to be a priest, verse 5. And that brings us to the fourth character in our story, 
Micah's son. Micah's son. Now, Micah wasn't a Levite. Of course, Micah's son wasn't a Levite. Again, this is Micah taking matters into his own hands, and at this point, he consecrates, he appoints, he elevates his son to be his priest. So Micah's shrine in his mind is complete. It, it, it is full. It is filled to the brim with silver idols. It is filled with other ornaments. And then he takes his own son and appoints his son to be a mediator between him and who he thinks is he is worshiping, which would be Yahweh. I mean, this is rock bottom for the nation of Israel. Think about what's going on here. In this story, we have the familial sphere represented in Micah's family that is completely defected. They are idolaters. We have the economic sphere with the silversmith. He has defected. He is an idolater. And what we will see soon is that the Levitical priesthood has defected and is in a state of idolatry. How did it get this bad? Verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now, it's interesting, and I want you to see this, that in verses 1 through 5, the author has been narrating this entire story. When he gets to verse 6, he stops the narration, and he gives what we would call a narrator comment. So this is the author making his own comment about a specific situation. So when that happens in Hebrew narrative, which is a distinct feature of Hebrew narrative, that ought to take our eyes right back to that text and draw our attention to it. The narrator is telling us why all of this is happening. Why is Micah constructing and building a shrine in his own home? And here's why. Because there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is the verse of Judges. It characterizes the entire book. When man rebels against God and his word and is left to his own devices and his own ways, he will do everything that he can to run away from God and will let the idol factory of his heart spew out for everyone to see. Micah has thrown Deuteronomy 12 to the side and he's determined he knows better than Yahweh. And we come across a series of idolatrous people in Ephraim. Again, one single family, but representing the whole. We come to a second group of people, and that is the idolatrous Levite from Bethlehem. 
the idolatrous Levite from Bethlehem. You follow along as I read from verses 7 to 12. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah who was a Levite, and he was staying there. Then the man departed from the city, from Bethlehem in Judah, to stay wherever he might find a place. And as he made his journey, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to stay wherever I may find a place. Micah then said to him, Dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes, and your maintenance. So the Levite went in. The Levite agreed to live with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. So another character enters the story. This is character number five, an unnamed Levite from Bethlehem in Judah. Now the Levites played a special role and had a unique ministry in the life of the nation of Israel. According to Numbers 16, 9, their primary function in the priesthood was to do the service of the tabernacle to the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them. So there were two main and primary aspects to the Levitical priesthood and their duties. The Levites were called to oversee and perform the duties in Yahweh's tabernacle, most uh, notable to us would be to perform sacrifices. And they were also to be ministers and shepherds and the worship leaders to the people, uh, to the nation of Israel. According to De Deuteronomy 33, the Levites were to teach God's ordinances and they were to teach God's law. Now in the post-Moses era, once the Israelites had conquered and divided the promised land, under the direction of God and the leadership of Joshua, the Levites were allocated to 48 towns or cities throughout the land. And Judges, or Joshua 21 and Numbers 35 tell us this. And it was these 48 towns that the Levites were to preside over in terms of sacrifices and ceremonies and preaching and teaching and administering the word of God. On a spiritual level, as it relates to their relationship with God, the Levites were to be, and this is key here, the Levites were to be the holiest and most sanctified people of the nation. Uh, they were to show the greatest adherence to God's law, both externally and from the heart. Uh, they were to have the highest character. They were to have moral excellence, exude godliness. They were to be leaders in their tribes, in their homes. They were to take care of people. They were to shepherd people. They were to love people. 
the Levitical priesthood uh, was the rebar or the backbone of the nation. As it was with the priesthood, so it was with the nation. If you had a faithful priesthood, you had a faithful nation. If you had an abominable priesthood, you had an abominable uh, nation. In Judges 17, you can go ahead and place this Levitical priest right alongside the other idolaters. He is no different from them. Now, as I noted, the Levites were allocated to 48 towns or 48 cities. Notice here that the priest in Judges 17, that he came from Bethlehem. Now, I can bet you can guess as we've looked over the context of this passage, things haven't been going well. So when it tells us that he is from Bethlehem, let me ask you, do you think that he, or that Bethlehem rather, is one of those 48 cities or those towns? Well, I'll spare you at looking at all 48 dots here. But Bethlehem was not one of the 48 towns where the Levites were supposed to be. In fact, this text indicates that this Levite wasn't even born in Bethlehem, but he was a temporary resident there, which means that he traveled there. As opposed to being in one of these 48 cities, he at some point left and went to Bethlehem, where he wasn't supposed to be. This Levite is completely out of line. He's doing what is right in his own eyes. Notice he's not trying to join any other Levites for true worship and service. Look at verse 8. In fact, it tells us that he's just trying to stay wherever he may find a place. He's got zero ambition, zero desire to administer the primary duties that he has been instructed by God to administer. He has no passion. He has no zeal. He wants zero responsibility. This Levite isn't even trying to serve God, so he ends up serving Micah. And by the way, he doesn't really want to serve. He just wants to have a place to stay, and he wants to have a little silver or cash on the side. What a disgrace. Uh, this is a worthless priest. By the way, if you go on to Judges chapter 18, verse 30, we're actually told who this unnamed priest is. It's Jonathan, the grandson of Moses. But this priest's neglect of his God-appointed duties, it didn't matter for Micah. That's also another shocking point in the story. Micah was completely fine to take on this priest who had been skirting his duties for no telling how long. Micah offers to be his companion, to show him friendship and invite him into his home. Micah appoints him as his father, which is a position of honor. Micah appoints him as his priest, to be a mediator before God. Notice he just kicks his son to the side. <laughs> I've got a Levite now. I'm going to appoint you as a priest. 
Micah paid him 10 pieces of silver a year and then Micah gave him a suit of clothes which is most likely priestly clothing what a shame for that Levitical priest and Micah as well well that brings us to a third group of people a third group and that is the idolatrous new Canaanites of Israel the idolatrous new Canaanites of Israel verse 13 then Micah said now I know that the Lord will prosper me seeing I have a Levite as priest that's a shocking statement isn't it the Hebrew word for know means to observe and to stand back and reflect Micah stood back and observed and reflected upon his entire situation and he came to the conclusion as he surveyed everything as he surveyed his family as he surveyed his shrine as he surveyed uh, the Levite the priest that he had just appointed and he determined that Yahweh God was prospering him Prosper means to be friendly towards, to deal well with. Micah's heart was so corrupt, it was so idolatrous, that he couldn't even see straight. He couldn't differentiate between truth and error. He couldn't differentiate between blessing and wrath. He couldn't differentiate between God, Yahweh God, and the Baals. And his final conclusion, the exclamation point in his mind on everything that had just transpired was that Yahweh God was blessing the work of his hands. It's shocking what idolatry will do. In Micah's mind, he had mixed Yahweh God with the Canaanite gods. And to take it one step further, he didn't even recognize what he had done. By the way, it's been said of Canaanite worship that Canaanite worship is essentially summed up by saying, what can I get out of it? Canaanite worship is essentially me, myself, and I. And that's where Micah had landed. Uh, That was his conclusion. Look what all I have done, and look what I have now in my presence. Surely this is Yahweh God who is blessing me. But the fact of the matter is, Micah had become spiritually void, He was spiritually dead. 
He was lifeless. He, he was a nothing. He was a nobody. He was just like the idols and the false gods that he had created and worshipped. Absolutely nothing. He wasn't worshipping God, but he was worshipping the Canaanite gods. Psalm 115 is a unique psalm because this psalm describes idols. It says that idols have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Just as idols are dead and lifeless and spiritually void and worthless, the same was true of Micah. He was spiritually dead. But again, the book of Judges here in this appendix is zoned in on one family, and this family is representative of the whole. The entire nation of Israel was spiritually dead, and they didn't even know it. Now, the Old Testament uses three Hebrew words for idols. The first means pellets of dung or shapeless, loggy things. That tells us that idols are essentially excrement. The second Hebrew word for idols means vanity or emptiness. Uh, which means that idols are absolutely nothing. The third Hebrew word for idols means things of shuddering, which essentially means that idols will wreck your life. Idolatry is like pellets of dung. It's absolutely nothing, and it will wreck your life. Micah became exactly what he worshipped. In fact, he could no longer identify as the, the ethnic people of God. He could only identify as a Canaanite. That's what he had worshipped and that's what he had become. But I think it's important as we continue to work forward in the message that we can't be so quick to judge Micah and think that because we don't have silver idols and priests in our homes, that idols and idolatry isn't a problem or a potential problem today. Idolatry can be defined as whatever your heart desires or whatever your heart clings to more than God. 
Do you cling uh, to money, wealth, possessions? What about politics or power or authority? Uh, Maybe it's food or pleasure or entertainment. Now, maybe you want the bigger house or the nicer car or more vacations or more extravagant vacations. Maybe it's the job promotion that you cling to above anything else. Uh, Maybe it's a salary increase or a bonus. Of course, none of those things are evil in their own right, but if those are placed up on a pedestal and you cling to that or those things more than God, you have now set up idols, not just in your house, but in your heart. It may not be a bull calf. It may not be silver. You may not have your go-to silversmith, But whatever you cling to and your heart desires more to God is the idol in your life. And it could even be things of the church if we aren't careful. Do you love your theology books over Scripture? Do you love celebrity pastors over the Word of God? Or maybe ministry programming, you love that more than you love serving God. Christ. You see, if we're not careful, John Calvin's words can be ever so true in our own hearts. We can produce idols after idols because our heart has the capacity and the ability to do so. You see, this is why we are in need of Christ and the gospel. It is Christ who has stepped into this world and who has paved a way for wretched, idolatrous sinners to be redeemed and brought to the one true God. Where we have all set up idols in our own hearts and in our own minds prior to Christ, he stepped down and he stepped in and he pulled us out of the pit of idolatry and he gave us life in his Son. For those of us who have professed Christ, we have been bought out of the pit of idolatry and we have been brought into the kingdom of the marvelous light where we no longer hold idols dear to our heart and we no longer cling to the idols of our day, but we cling to Christ. All I need is Christ. If you don't know Christ, Let me say that, in essence, you are a Canaanite. You have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. You have worshipped the creature rather than the creator. You have exchanged the glory of God for that which has been made by hands. But in God's great goodness and in his great kindness, he has brought repentance in the person of Jesus Christ and he has made the gospel available for you if you will turn from your idolatry and you will trust in Jesus aren't we grateful for the gospel and the fact that there is no idol that Christ cannot destroy
Well, that concludes the exposition of Judges 17. But notice that Judges 17 doesn't really hint at how Micah got there, right? It just tells us, yeah, he's a really bad guy. So quickly, let's look at four key failures that we find in the nation of Israel. And this will enlighten us as to how Micah got to the position that he did. Four failures of the nation of Israel, and you'll find these all throughout the book of Judges. First off, they failed to completely drive out the Canaanites. And this is really the irony of the book. In Judges 1, God specifically says to drive out all of the Canaanites. But they refused to do so. So by the time you get to chapter 17, instead of driving out the Canaanites, they had become Canaanites. They failed in that regard. Secondly, they failed to establish and attend a permanent place of worship. Rather than establishing a permanent place for the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, the people established local or regional sanctuaries. In addition, although there were annual festivals held at central places, some of the tribes couldn't get to the central place of worship because they couldn't get through the Canaanites they were supposed to drive out. There was no central place of worship, So what did the people do? They did what was right in their own eyes. Thirdly, they failed to keep Canaanite doctrine out of their faith and practice. They failed to keep Canaanite doctrine out of their faith and practice. They incorporated all of the Canaanites' religious customs, their service, their works, and their deeds All of those were incorporated into the nation of Israel's worship, and they did not bow down to Yahweh, but they bowed down to the Baals. Lastly, they failed to love Yahweh and his word alone. They failed to love Yahweh and his word alone. So if you go back and read Judges 1 through 16, these are the four key failures that you will see that ultimately got Micah where he was at in our passage. Now we've seen those failures. Let's flip those failures and let's look at four key commitments that we must keep in order to pursue Christ and flee from idolatry. The first key commitment that we must keep is that we must commit to habitually obeying God's word. We must commit to habitually obeying God's word. The issue in Judges wasn't that they didn't know God's word. It wasn't that they didn't have God's word. It's that they failed to obey it. They failed to obey it. And Jesus says in the Gospel of John, you are my friend if you do what I command. You love me if you love my word. 
We have to be a people that habitually obeys God's word. Now, secondly, we must commit to regularly attending corporate worship. By not attending a central place of worship, the people of God were cut off from being taught the word of God and being able to fellowship with the people of God. Sunday morning corporate worship is non-negotiable for God's people. If you begin to compromise on the Lord's day and you repeatedly miss corporate worship on the Lord's day, you will begin to spiral downward like the book of Judges describes. Thirdly, you must commit to rejecting the doctrines of the culture. The nation of Israel embraced the doctrines of the Canaanites. You must reject the doctrine of the culture. And by the way, that doctrine is being screamed at you everywhere you go. And lastly, you must commit to loving Christ. You must commit to loving Christ. John 21, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? In Ephesians 6, Paul ends that epistle compelling the Ephesians to love Christ. And then in Revelation 2, Christ calls out the church of Ephesus because they had lost their first love. We must commit to loving Christ. Well, in G.K. Beale's helpful book, We Become What We Worship, he writes, what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. May God help us not to become like Canaanites, but to become like Christ. Pray with me. God, we are grateful for who you are and who you have revealed yourself to be in your precious word. And even when we come to difficult passages like Judges 17 and we see the failures of your people, it's a great reminder that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you have provided a way to save us from such catastrophe. Let this passage be a reminder of what we were before Christ stepped into our lives. Help us cling to him with everything that we have. In his name we pray. Amen.